If you have a Bible this morning, let's open up to John chapter 21, last chapter in John's gospel. John chapter 21, we're actually going to look at the entire chapter today, but we're not through with our John series this Sunday, because what we're going to do is we're going to add a week next Sunday, we're going to look at the uh, book of Acts, and we're going to see Jesus' ascension. So just as John's gospel begins with this great explanation of the word became flesh and dwelt among us, he came down from heaven. Jesus has promised throughout this time, I need to go away so that the helper would come. He said, I am going to return to my father. And so next week, we're going to kind of complete the arc as we look at Jesus' ascension back up into heaven in glory with his father. And so, but we're going to finish up John's gospel this morning, uh, and then we'll look to Acts to finish our series next week. And so remember, if you have no idea where John is, it's okay to use the table of contents. Feel free to use that. We're in the New Testament. And remember, you'll look at Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then John, and go to that very last chapter, 21, and we're going to start in verse 1. And while you're, while you're opening there, I want you to think about a time when you failed miserably at something. I mean, just epically failed. It may have been a job. You may have been fired. It may have been something you were asked to do, and you just couldn't do it. Maybe you completely bombed a test. A project that you kind of started off, like there's that whole show that's called Nailed It, where people try to recreate these like Instagram-worthy desserts and things, and they, they have a, like a couple of hours to do it, and they never end up great. They always end up absolutely terrible on a public scale. Think about a relationship that may have bombed. Just think about a time when you failed miserably. Think about a time in my own life when I started seminary, they gave the Bible entrance exam at RTS. It was kind of like a, an intro kind of thing that you took to kind of gauge where you are. Uh, you'll be <laughs> happy to know. I eventually did pass it because <laughs> I had to pass it to graduate. But let's just say I set the record for the lowest score ever on the Bible entrance exam. And everybody knew it. <laughs> and not only did I walk away from that, I was going, am I even a Christian? I don't know. <laughs> Thankfully, by God's grace, that was kind of an entry point into seminary where they kind of threw that shot over the bow to help remind you of just how little you knew. And the whole, those rest of those three years while drinking from a fire hose were an equipping kind of time that by the end of it, by God's grace, I was able to pass the Bible exam that I had bombed in record fashion. Well, several years ago, a woman took the stage at a Harvard graduation to give the commencement speech, which she jokingly acknowledged that no one actually remembers. You may remember who spoke at your graduation, but I doubt you actually remember what they said. She was acknowledging that. It's also true of many sermons. We preachers acknowledge this reality uh, that you probably forget what we say, which is why we come back every week and we basically say the same thing over and over again. Here's what this lady said uh, from the dais at this Harvard graduation. She said, ultimately, we all have to decide for ourselves what constitutes failure, but the world is quite eager to give you a set of criteria if you let it. So I think it's fair to say that by any conventional measure, a mere seven years after my graduation day, I had failed on an epic scale. An exceptionally short-lived marriage had imploded. I was jobless, a lone parent, and as poor as it could possibly be in our modern Britain without being homeless. The fears that my parents had for me and that I had for myself had both come to pass, 
And by every usual standard, I was the biggest failure I knew. So why do I talk about the benefits of failure? Simply because failure meant a stripping away of the inessential. I stopped pretending to myself that I was anything other than I was and began to direct all my energy into finishing the only work that mattered to me. Had I really succeeded at anything else, I might never have found the determination to succeed in the one arena I believed I truly belonged. I was set free because my greatest fear had been realized and I was still alive and I still had a daughter whom I adored and I had an old typewriter and a big idea. And so rock bottom became the solid foundation on which I rebuilt my life, end quote. That person who said that very publicly was J.K. Rowling, who was the the Harry Potter kind of series of books. Said that about herself. I, at one point, I was the biggest failure I ever I, I could think of. That was me. And have you ever wondered, as we sit and we think about, you know, there's something that you've epically failed um, doing, or you think about this speech that J.K. Rowling gave. Have you ever wondered if your failures were somehow part of a bigger plan? That God was still at work amidst those? You ever wondered that? John Flavel once famously wrote, the providence of God is like the Hebrew language. It's best read backwards, which I think was absolutely true. You have these moments where you turn around and you go, oh, there you are. That's what you've been up to. Even our failures are part of God's plan, and we usually only see it after the fact. John Stott, a very famous 20th century British preacher and theologian, once said this, which I found incredibly comforting given my propensity to doubt my call to ministry every Sunday on the ride home. I get through, like, number one, I always ask, did that sermon make any sense at all? Number two, am I really even called to this? Here, here's what John Stott said. He said, and seldom if I ever do, and seldom if ever do I leave the pulpit without a sense of partial failure, a mood of penitence, a cry to God for forgiveness, and a resolve to look to him for grace to do better in the future. Thank you, John Stott. Especially as I, I think about, uh, you know, my own life in light of that quote, my own ministry, I failed many people. Many times, many in this very room or listening online. I failed a lot of people many times over many occasions. And it's crippling when you sit and think about it. It can be. It's hard to stare your failure in the face. These past three years as pastor of Grace Presbyterian Church have been hard. Ned, not little did I know that you would throw a global pandemic in the middle of that. That we made it through by God's grace. But these past three years have been hard. And so like Stott, as I stare my own failure in the face, all I can do is be honest about it and ask God and you for forgiveness and look to Christ to do better moving forward and trusting and resting in Him. I know that I haven't done exactly what I probably need to do or what you think I need to do. And all I can say is I'm sorry and just move forward and stare it right in the face and then trust by God's grace that we can move together in hope because there's always hope in Christ. And this morning, we're going to look at a passage where the resurrected Jesus shows up and speaks into failure in the closing chapter of John's Gospel. And as we read this, I usually give you the points after this, but I'm going to give, you, give them to you on the front because I want to see if you can find them as we read this text. As we read this passage, I want you to notice two things. These are going to be our two main points. I'll remind you of them later. Our two main sermon points this morning. I want you to see how Jesus, number one, offers grace to the discouraged. 
And also, I want you to see how he provides restoration for the broken. So I want you to see how he gives grace to the discouraged and restoration to the broken. Those are our two main points that we're going to look at this morning. But let's, with that in our mind, let's go to John 21. I'm going to read this at a good clip. We've got a long way to go and a short time to get there. So buckle up. Here we go. Let's give attention to the reading of God's Word. John 21, starting in verse 1. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples about the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of the disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. And they said to him, We will go with you. And they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to them, Children, do you have any fish? And they answered him, No. And he said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, It is the Lord. And when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, and they were not far off from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid on it and bread, and Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish that you've just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. And Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. And none of the disciples dared to ask him, Who are you? They knew it was the Lord. And Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. And this was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. And he said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, Follow me. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who had been reclining at table close to him and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So the saying spread abroad among the brothers that this disciple was not to die, yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die, but if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. Now, there, were also, there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Thus endeth the reading of John's Gospel. Well, may the Lord use this passage, take these words, and apply them to our hearts. 
And may we receive them by faith as we remember that the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray and ask the Holy Spirit's help as we look to this. Please pray with me. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this passage. Pray that you would take these words, as we've already said, apply them to our hearts. Lord, we need you. Please watch over us, O Lord, and remind us of your grace and mercy. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. As we finished up this John's Gospel, it feels like kind of the end of a long hike. You know, we've been at it for a long time. And remember, we've still got another week in the series to go as we see Jesus returning to his Father. But it's interesting because this last passage of John functions kind of like an epilogue. And some critical scholars have argued that it does not belong in the canon of Scripture because it seems like a kind of an unnecessary addition after John stated the purpose of his writing back in verse 31 of chapter 20 where he said, uh, I've written these things so that you may believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Uh, but as you have noticed, I am not one of those critical scholars, and I believe this passage helps tie up a loose end that you may have forgotten about. Because what it does is it answers the question, whatever happened to Peter after he denied Jesus three times way back in chapter 18? What happens to him? We'll get to him specifically in our second point, but first we see Jesus interacting with a group of seven disciples on the shore of the Sea of Tiberias. And Matthew records that this was the very same place where Jesus had first called many of these disciples. And so the Sea of Tiberias and the Sea of Galilee, kind of interchangeable names for the same place. And it's interesting as we see the close of John's Gospel, kind of the narrative comes full circle as they kind of come back to the same place where it all began. And the disciples had received word from the women at the tomb that Jesus would eventually meet them there. You see that in Matthew 28.10. And as they waited, they returned to do what they knew how to do best. So they were kind of there and trying to figure out what to do, but they're back in their old kind of stomping grounds. And they, as they were waiting for Jesus to show up, they kind of went back to what they knew how to do, which is go fish. So one of them says, I'm going to go fish. And the other one say, great, we'll come with you. And so off they go to go do some fishing. But John tells us in verse 3 that they fished all night and they caught nothing. <laughs> Those of you who have ever been on fishing trips know that this can be the case. Sometimes you go out and you catch a lot of fish, but oftentimes you go out and you catch nothing. Now imagine doing that all night, and imagine going back to something that you thought you knew how to do. Your kind of life as you've known it for the past few years, you've been walking with Jesus, has changed. And so you think, hey, how hard can fishing be? It's like riding a bike, right? Then you find out that you go out all night, fish all night, and you catch nothing. Pretty big failure, right? You're thinking, what have we done? They're tired, they're discouraged. But as we said in point one, this is our first point. Jesus offers grace to the discouraged. Look at verse 8. John tells us that the boat was about a football field away from the shore. And in verse 4, Jesus shows up, but they don't recognize him. I don't know how. They don't. It could have been early in the morning. We don't really know. But all we know is Jesus, they didn't recognize him. And in verse 5, he basically asks, boys, have you caught anything? Where he calls them children, that means lads or fellows or boys. Boys, have you caught anything yet? And they say, no. You have to admit, we haven't caught a thing. And I think when I was thinking about this passage, we've all had net moments like this, haven't you? Where we've exhausted our own resources, we've kind of had to come to grips with our own failure. It feels like the nets are empty. What have you got to show your work? The answer sometimes is, Nothing. We've all had empty moments like this, empty net moments. 
But the Lord allows us to experience moments like this to bring us closer to Him and to realize that we need to rely on Him and not our own resourcefulness. Here's what Kent Hughes said. He said, with Christ in the midst directing the work, unlike the first miracle, the resources are never overstrained. Nothing in a person or a group of persons is beyond his power and grace. Serving Christ in our own strength, trying to do it on our own way, is like going after Moby Dick with a pickle fork. Moby Dick's a whale, if you're unfamiliar with the story. So he said, doing it in your own strength is like going after that giant whale with a tiny little pickle fork. But led and sustained by Christ's strength, the net will never tear. Look at verse 6 where this unknown guy to the disciples tells them to do something that seems crazy. Just throw the net on the other side of the boat, probably less than 10 feet from its current location. You think about they're adrift out here fishing. That net that they threw out, probably pretty sizable by the time it spans out. And he's basically just saying, hey, just throw it on the other side. What do you think they're thinking? We're literally fishing that spot right now. Why would the fish be over here but not over here? That doesn't make any sense. We're the fishermen. But you can imagine what's going on here. Never mind that they were basically fishing that exact same spot at the exact same moment. But think about it. They failed so miserably all night. They're willing to try anything. You ever been in one of those moments where somebody comes and they offers you a, a bit of advice after you've epically failed at something and you've arrived at the point where you're like, hey, at this point, I'll try anything. So they throw the net on the other side of the boat. And they cast it out, and what happens? It immediately fills up with fish. That line goes tight, and all of a sudden the net gets full of fish again. Look at verse 7. John tells us that something had tipped him off, and he said to Peter, It's the Lord. And what had tipped him off? Back in Luke 5, it tells us that several of these same disciples <clears throat> had witnessed another miraculous catch of fish on the exact same body of water, which is apparently also called the Lake of Gesineret. So we have three different names for the same place. The previous miracle had led to broken nets. Now, when we think about what's going on here in the different names, some have attacked the truthfulness of Scripture by pointing to this apparent discrepancy in the name and place. Well, was it the Sea of Galilee, or was it the Sea of Tiberias, or was it the Lake of Gesineret? Which one was it? I want to set your mind at ease about this, because as some have attacked the truthfulness of Scripture, it's just like how many buildings go by different names in town depending on how long you've lived here. Like, for example, the Mapco near my house, which is right over here, directly back here, I know it as the Mapco at the bottom of 85. But if you've lived here long enough, you might know it as Belfonts. It's kind of the same thing. You know, you may know it as one thing, but it's the exact same place. It just depends on how long you've been there. So this isn't a discrepancy at all. What you see is the disciples sitting here looking, and it finally clicks and they realized that it was Jesus. And good old impulsive Peter does what he does best, which is do something impulsive. He jumps first and he asks questions later. And look in verse 8. He left the other disciples to haul the boat ashore after a frustrating, tiring night of bad fishing. So here Peter jumps in, leaves the other disciples behind, and they've got to haul the boat in. Thanks, Peter. Appreciate that. But look in verse 9. When they get ashore, they find a warm fire, a hot meal, and their best friend and Lord waiting on them. What did the Lord do? He had prepared a table for them in the midst of their failure. Hang on to that. He had prepared a table for them. Look at verse 10 and 11. 
John tells us that the nets were not torn and they had caught 153 fish. Now there have been scholars who have written libraries about the significance of this number. I don't think there's any other significance to this number other than it was a ton of large fish. 153? You're like, that's a shockingly specific number. But hey, if you were telling this fish story to your buddies later on, wouldn't you want to know the exact count? I caught 153 and did you notice it said large fish? So, you know, it seems like I, I don't think we need to get wrapped around the axle of trying to understand the, you know, the deeper meaning of 153. They caught a ton of fish. That's it. It was impressive. And it was a miracle because they had caught nothing the night before. Here's what Philip Comfort said. He said, tired, hungry, and frustrated, these discouraged disciples needed a lift. They lacked direction. They were uncertain of the Lord's presence and help. And Jesus came to them, made his presence known, and gave them direction. Now, when you think about your own life, I want to get real practical. Aren't you glad for how Jesus met you in your own discouragement? Aren't you glad for how Jesus has done that for you? How he met you when you had reached the end of your own strength? How he came to you in the midst of your fears, in the midst of your doubts, in the midst of your failures, in the midst of your spiritual wanderings in those weak moments? Aren't you glad for Jesus who came towards you when you were at your worst, I'm thankful for that. I hope you are. Again, here's what Kent Hughes said, and this is really interesting. He talks about how we have a problem with admitting this. Here's what Kent said. We live out a tragedy of the greatest proportions when we will not even admit to ourselves that we've failed, whether it be in devotion to God in relation to one another or in our calling to serve. One of the abiding glories of the gospel is that it brings us face to face with the reality about ourselves in the world. He said it's a great tragedy that we have a hard time admitting our failure. And so the question then becomes as we sit here in church on a Sunday morning, a gathering of the failed, that's us, that's all of us, has the gospel given you this type of freedom? Do you have this type of freedom to admit, maybe for the first time, that you're a wreck, that you are a failure, that you don't have it all together? Has the gospel given you that freedom to admit that you can't do life on your own? The gospel frees us to admit our own inadequacy. It frees us to stop hiding from our failures, to admit that we're spiritual wrecks, and to extend grace to fellow wrecks just like us. I'm a wreck. You're a wreck. We're all a wreck. What we need is to extend grace and love and mercy as a family. When you join this church, you became our wreck. We love you. You became a part of this great body. You're just one wreck coming alongside another wreck. That's what we do. That's the church. But has the gospel given you this freedom? Are you growing in your ability to freely do this? To admit your own failure? The gospel frees us to admit what? It's okay that we're not okay. I failed. I've fallen short. Has the gospel given you that freedom? Are you still holding so tightly to this perfectly manicured, created exterior image that you have it all together? Are you still clinging tightly to that? It's saying, if, if this goes away, then my life is over. The gospel frees you to admit to let go of that stuff. What's the first question you have to answer in the affirmative to join this church? Are you a sinner in desperate need of God's grace? And then you affirm, yes, the church and the mob are the only two places you have to admit you're bad to get in. That's question one. 
Are you bad? Yes. Second question, do you look to Jesus alone? Yes. That's the difference. Yes, I'm a wreck. I am a great sinner, as Newton said, but he is what? A great Savior. We hold those two things. We're able to say, yes, I'm the worst. I'm the worst. You're the worst. We're all the worst. That's why we need Jesus. Has the gospel given you this type of freedom? Are you able to freely admit this about yourself? Or are you still white-knuckling your way through life trying to hold on to this carefully crafted, manicured image of yourself? Guess what? It's going to fade. It's going to break. If that's what you hold on tightly to and say, this is the thing that defines me, then please hear me say, let it go and look to Christ. It's not going to work out. You need Jesus. Jesus alone. That's what you need. The gospel of Christ frees us to admit that we're broken, and it holds out the truth that Jesus is able to make the broken things beautiful and to restore them. Do you believe that? Kent Hughes again, he said, The fisherman, a picture of the church toiling on the restless seas of life, found it was Christ who brings the increase, and apart from him they could do nothing. They also found that his resources were sufficient, whatever the catch. Though we now serve him on the dark seas of life in this age, our risen Lord wants us to focus on the fact that he is on the eternal shore in the ever-increasing light, preparing a table for us. So, first point. Jesus offers hope to the discouraged. Second point. Jesus brings restoration to the broken. And this is good news. Did you notice what Peter did before he jumped out of the boat? Look back in verse 7. You notice what he did? Almost instinctively. In verse 7, he instinctively covered his nakedness. The Greek indicated that Peter was either naked or close to it. He had stripped for work. You know, they had long tunics and they were on a boat, tight quarters. He didn't want anything getting caught up. And so, did you notice what he did? The Greek is garhain gymnos, completely unclad or clad in undergarments only. It's actually that Greek word we get gymnasium from. And this seems like such a small detail. Why in the world would this be included? It seems so inconsequential. But the weirdness of it points to something else. Here's what Sproul said. In the Garden of Eden, after Adam and Eve sinned, they tried to cover their nakedness because of their shame under the gaze of a holy God. Now Peter was going to face the Savior he had denied and betrayed, and so he covered himself and plunged into the water. Did you notice what he did? He instinctively covered himself. He instinctively knew his shame. He instinctively knew his guilt. And he did what we've been trying to do all the way since back in the garden, which is to cover our shame and guilt as if God doesn't see it. Try to control the narrative. Stay in control of it all. But we feel this, God's holy and I'm not. You ever felt that? I feel it all the time. He's holy and I'm not. I feel it. And I want to cover it up. But here's the thing that Peter also recognized about Jesus. He couldn't wait to get to the shore to see him face to face. It's very reminiscent of what the younger brother did, or the younger son did in Luke 15. He moves towards the Father. And do you remember where we last saw Peter in the Gospel of John after he denied Jesus? He was hiding alone in the court of the high priest at night. John 18, 18. It says, Now the servants and officers had made a what? Charcoal fire. Because it was cold, and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter was also with them, standing and warming himself. 
You look at this specific detail that John includes, and it is no coincidence that Jesus prepared this specific fire for his interaction with Peter. We're asking, what happened to Peter? Charcoal fire when we last saw him? Charcoal fire now. This is the focus of John's epilogue, and what you are about to see is an absolute picture of grace and good news for you and me this morning. Look at verse 15 where Jesus asked Peter question number one. Do you love me more than these? And he calls him Simon, son of John, which is exactly what Jesus called Peter after he answered another question, which is, who do you say that I am? We see Peter's great confession. He says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus pronounces a blessing on whom? Simon Bar-Jonah, which is another way of saying Simon, son of John. Jesus uses the word agapao here, the highest form of love. And the word these is kind of ambiguous. I think that Jesus was asking Peter if he loved him more than the other disciples did. Some have said, do you love me more than the fishing stuff? Or do you love me more? I think he means, Simon, do you love me more than these other disciples do? Peter knew that of all the surviving disciples, he had betrayed Jesus more deeply and publicly than anyone else. But he responds, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Sproul said, rather than being dismissed from ministry for the rest of his life for his scandalous transgression, he saw the grace of God more fully than the rest. And notice what Jesus tells Peter to do. Feed my lambs. Look at verse 16, where Jesus asks Peter the exact same question for the second time, and Peter responds the exact same way for a second time. And Jesus again issues a, car- a charge to love the flock. Do you notice in our liturgy earlier in the service we talked a lot about sheep and shepherds and all that kind of stuff that was on purpose look here verse 17 Jesus asked Peter the exact same question a third time and we're told that Peter was grieved because Jesus asked him a third time but Peter responds with the acknowledgement that Jesus knows his heart and that his love is true and Jesus again tells Peter to feed the flock and with that Peter is fully restored to ministry as an under-shepherd in the service of the chief shepherd, Jesus Christ himself. Three betrayals met with three commissions and restorations. It is an absolute picture of a broken thing being made whole again. Don't you see it? It's an absolute picture of grace. Where we left, left Peter was in his betrayal, alone, dark, by a fire. Jesus meets him, calls him, makes the fire makes a meal of friendship and restores him fully. He doesn't shun him. He doesn't shoo him away. He invites him back in. It's absolute grace when you think about it. Here's again what Kent Hughes said. He said, The restoration was accomplished and they had all seen it. And now they probably understood that the Lord had planned it all. (laughs) You think? Peter's denials happened before a fire and now Peter's confessions were before a charcoal fire. There were three denials and now three confessions as well as three gracious commissions. And Jesus is telling Peter to not starve the flock but to make them his highest concern. I was ordained back in 2010 and I was challenged with these very same words. Feed my sheep. A charge that by God's grace that I like many other pastors take very seriously. To feed the sheep. I want to see the flock that God has entrusted with me fat and happy as it regularly feeds on God's word and regularly deepens its understanding of the gospel. Deuteronomy 8.3, man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes out of the mouth of the Lord. I want you to be fat and happy in the scriptures. 
I want you to be resting and trusting in Christ. I want you to be basking in His grace and mercy and coming to grips with a deeper understanding of the gospel and all that He has done. That's the desire. I pray that God would keep me faithful to my main calling, which is feeding the sheep. I pray that God would keep the wolves out, that He would lead us by still waters and give us a love for the only spiritual food that matters, the one that though we so often neglect, which is that Bible in our laps, I pray that we would see that we can't keep the storehouse full on our own, despite how shiny and put together that we may appear on the outside. I want us to see I can't do it on my own. I want you to be able to freely admit that. I can't do life on my own. That's why I need Jesus. That's why I need fellow believers. I've spent three years in this town, and it grieves me to know that many of God's sheep are slowly starving on a diet of man-centered, graceless, moralistic preaching that only points to a treadmill and doesn't point to a cross. That may have been your background. You heard, you better do it, and you need to straighten up, and you need to do this more. Where's the grace? Where's Jesus? It's just man-centered nonsense. And I've spent three years here. I can't tell you how many people I've talked to. They're starving to death and they don't even know it. Because all they hear is a treadmill. Get on the treadmill and run. Hopefully you run fast enough. Maybe you can catch up with God. He's already way ahead of you. You better run fast and catch up. Because if you don't catch Him, you're in deep trouble. That's not the gospel. That's not the gospel. That's moralism. And it's killing you. That's not the gospel. These people have just been unable to freely admit their promises, their, their problems. Why? Because they're afraid of being shunned. They're afraid if they show up and say, I don't have it all together, that they're going to be kicked out of the Holy Roller Club. Ladies and gentlemen, this is not a Holy Roller Club. This is a gathering of sinners who need Jesus, and I, the chief among them. They say, I need Christ, and so do you. For many, the work is never finished. They're told to run on their own strength instead of resting in the finished work of Christ. For many, the yoke of Christ has been made heavy by people adding to the gospel. Here's the gospel. If this is you, get off the treadmill of your own moral effort and rest in Christ. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. That's it. Period. It's Christ. Jerry Bridges summed up the gospel of grace beautifully in his book, The Disciplines of Grace. Here's what he said. On your best days, you're never so good that you don't stand in need of God's grace. And on your worst days, you're never so bad that you're beyond the reach of God's grace. Amen. Christianity is not about us getting right with God before He will love us. But it's about us trusting that God the Father has already made us right through His Son because He loved us before the foundation of the world. That's the gospel. Now, how did, how did all this happen? He called to us by the power of the Holy Spirit while we were dead, floating on the boat of our own moral failure. You don't want to know where you are in that passage? You're either floating dead on top of the boat, or you've already fallen off into the water and you're dead at the bottom. That's it. So you need someone to come and to make you alive again, because you can't do it on your own. It's a beautiful picture of God's grace. And you ask, how did God do all of this, if that's true? Galatians 4, 4 through 7. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. And you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through Christ. 
That's the promise that we hold tightly to. God is the one who has made us right through His own Son. We don't make ourselves right. He makes us right. He declares us righteous. He does all the work. We said before, the only thing you bring to the salvation equation is the sin that made it necessary. That's all you bring. Everything else is of God. Calling you, changing you, shaping you, moving you. All of it is Christ. All the promises of God find their yes and amen in Christ. And to that we say, amen. Amen. Now in this passage, almost done, we see Peter and John together on the shore with Christ. And do you know where they ended up? Acts chapter 4, verses 10 through 12. Before the very same people that plotted to kill Jesus. We hear about Caiaphas, the high priest, and these same people that we've already talked about. Where do Peter and John end up? Before those same exact people. And do you know what they said? They said, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders which has become the cornerstone, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. That's what they said. The question is, is that your confession this morning? Can you confess that? That it is no other name, not my own. There's no other name under heaven by which men can be saved. And we look to Christ and Christ alone. Is that your confession? Do you see your absolute need for Christ this morning? Do you see it? Whether you've been a Christian your whole life, whether you're a complete skeptic, whether you're checked out, do you see your need for Jesus Christ this morning? Because that's all we have. We don't have anything in and of ourselves. We come and we say, I need Christ. Christ is all I have. It's all I have. Do you see that this morning? It may cost you something to proclaim this message. Did you notice what Jesus said to Peter in verses 18 and 19? Basically, you're going to be crucified. Hold out your arms like this. This is the kind of death that you're going to die. Someone's going to take you off and and dress you in something else, and you're going to die this death. It may cost you something. What did he just say? There's no other name under heaven by which men can be saved. It might cost you something. It sure costs something for Peter. But this is the message we hold out to the world around us regardless of the cross, regardless of the cost. What's the message we hold out? To a broken and dying, God-hating world. It's simply this. Christ has died, Christ is risen, and Christ will come again. That's what we hold to. We hold to Jesus. It's a message of hope. It's a message of grace. It's a message of restoration. Why? Because we really do believe that there is no one, no one too far gone who is outside the reach of the grace of God. Because that's your story, and that's my story, And whether you were living in your car with these wonderful, you know, we all love the fantastic conversion stories. Or if you were like me, which is a self-righteous older brother, that was my story. I thought I was the one who saved myself. I thought I was the one who had it all right. I was the one saying, isn't God lucky to have me on my team? And I was lost in sin, thinking it was me. Whether that is, the answer's the same. Christ has died. Christ is risen, Christ will come again, and we look to Him and Him alone, not ourselves. That's it. Look to Christ. I say it every week, don't I? Look to Jesus, look to Jesus, look to Jesus, because you're going to forget it. You know what I'm going to do next week? Look to Jesus, 
Look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. That's all I got. That's the fastball I got. You're going to get one pitch. It's the fastball down the middle. Look to Christ. It's him. It's him alone. That's all I got. That's all you've got. And it's the best hope we could ever have that we have Christ. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for these great promises. You met these disciples in the midst of their discouragement. You met Peter in the midst of his brokenness and his betrayal and his denial, and you restored them. And not restored them kind of, restored them fully. It gave them hope. It gave them direction. Lord, we're so quick to forget your promises. We're so quick to run our own way. Forgive us, O oh Lord. Lord, we are grateful as we think that it's not about us to hold tightly to you. It's us resting in the fact that you hold tightly to us. We're about to sing about it. Lord, we're grateful that all the promises of God find their yes and amen, not in our own work, not in our own effort. They find their yes and amen in Christ. And I pray, O oh Father, that we would be able to admit that we're a wreck and that we're a failure and that we need Christ because that's a great place to be. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit. We admit that. We don't have anything that we bring. It's really hard to admit it, maybe for the first time. But man, what a freeing thing to be able to do, to finally admit I'm a failure, but that Jesus loves me. Lord, we're thankful that you do love <laughs> failures and that you have brought us from death into life not by our own moral record, but simply by your grace. And so it is to Christ that we cling to and we look to, O oh Lord, and we're grateful that you hold us fast until the very end. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.